Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe, and this is a bit of an unusual episode because normally I'm interviewing somebody about their lives and their journeys, but this is also a platform to spread information, and I know there's a lot of uncertainty about a change in the law which is coming up, and this particularly has to do with incorporated societies. So in New Zealand, there's about 24,000 of those, and a new act just came out. So in this session, I've just pulled out the audio from a free seminar that we held recently. And what we were doing was talking about all the changes which are going to be relevant to the 24,000 or so incorporated societies. I really want Seeds to be a resource where people can get accurate information. And so I thought this was important enough to put out as a free resource so that people can find it and listen and understand what the changes mean. So if you're looking for the more typical interview where I'm talking with one person about their life stories, then you might want to skip to the next one. But for those of you who are still here, let's get into this session about what the changes are to the Incorporate Societies Act. All right. Well, kia ora koto. Tēnā koto katoa. No America hold no te timatanga. Ko te tai toku maunga, ko waitaki toku awa, ko otatahi toku kainga inai nei, he roia toku tunga mahi o Perryfield Lawyers, ko Stephen Mo toku ingwa, no reira namihi kia koto katoa. Hey, it's really wonderful to welcome so many of you to this session. Um, we're going to be diving deep into incorporated societies and the recent changes uh, which will be coming in uh, in the next few months and years. Um, we're, we're glad that there's been such a good response. Um, we are recording this, so I know some of you are watching this later. And to, to those who are watching later, um, welcome. And it's great to have you joining, um, even if it's not at this moment. Um, so just a little bit of introduction. We're going to keep this fairly informal. Um, our, our purpose in doing this is to give you as much information as possible um, within about a 45-minute period. So we are going to be um, sharing some of the top 10 things that we've noticed that all incorporated societies will be affected by in the new act. Um, and then we'll also be having some questions and answers. So um, you've all proven that you know how to use the chat function um, because we see all of the locations that you're in and what the weather is like there. Um, so we'd encourage you to continue using it. As we're speaking, you might have a question that comes to mind. Feel free to drop it into the chat and we'll do our best to um, be answering um, towards once we've had a chance to go through some of the, the presentation and the content. Um, so just before we get it underway there, um, my name is Stephen Moe, and I'm a partner in a law firm called Perryfield Lawyers. Um, we're based in Otatahi Christchurch, um, but I really view it as a base because we're supporting clients across the whole country. Um, so I'm often in Wellington, Auckland, Queenstown, traveling quite a lot. And I think that's the beauty of a small country is that you can be based in one place, but be active everywhere. Um, so... Our law firm has about 75 people, so we've got quite a good base of um, experts, and um, we in our purpose-driven impact team have a real focus on not-for-profits and charities. Um, so towards the end, we'll, we'll explain a little bit about what we do, um, but we try to put out free guides and information and hold sessions like this to hopefully empower the sector to know a bit more about what are the key changes? What do we need to know? Not just incorporate societies, but more generally as well. 
Um, so we host monthly impact calls, gathering people together so that they're able to um, learn more about what's going on across the country. And um, in the chat, we are going to be putting some links. So Sophie, um, who's sitting beside me, also has a computer, but she's going to be um, adding some links as we talk. Um, so that's, that's a bit about me. I've practiced for 20 years and I have an accent. But don't believe accents, because I actually grew up in Christchurch. Um, this is where I was from, and I've lived overseas in six different countries as well, but now really focused on um, New Zealand and the impact sector or purpose-driven organizations. Um, and I'm joined today, I'm really lucky to have um, Sophie here. Um, so Sophie, do you want to come into the screen there? And we're going to be tag teaming. Um, Sophie Chemuin um, works in our team. And so when we go through the list, I'll be doing one and she'll be doing another. And we'll kind of go back and forth um, in a minute. So um, it, it, yeah, it's great to see the interest in this topic. Um, as we know, uh, the Corporate Societies Act 2022 has been a long time coming, right? <laughs> um, it, it's actually really interesting to think about history. And if you go back far enough, the first uh, legislation which had to do with this area was an act which was called the Unclassified Societies Registration Act of 1895. Um, and of course, I've got it here, it, right here, you can see the, the old style of all of the font and the logos. And let's see, how long was it? One page, two page, three pages, <laughs> there's 18 sections. So it's extremely short. Um, that contrasts with the current act, which has 270 sections. So there's been quite a lot of change. So the 1895 act, then there was another act, which is the current one, which is the Incorporated Societies Act 1908. Um, and I can guarantee none of us on the call were alive then. So there has been a lot of change in New Zealand since 1908. That's more than 110 years ago. So it's something um, which has been talked about for a while. And um, even for the last decade, I think those of us who've been watching have been kind of waiting, wondering, will it ever pass? Will something change? Um, so we kept getting news flashes of, Oh, it's, it's maybe gonna be looked at, no, not, not this time. But finally, um, earlier this year, the act was passed. So there's definite change now. The Incorporated Societies Act 2022 exists. Um, so that uh, act, it received royal assent on the 5th of April. Um, many of the sections are actually modeled on the Companies Act. And the new act is, it's basically trying to reflect good governance for incorporate societies and ensure that there's protections. And we're gonna get into the detail of this. When things don't go well, how will the society deal with it? How will the officers deal with it? Um, and the other thing is it does codify some of the law which already exists, which was what we would call common law, but it's not ever been put into a statute. So some of the duties which we'll go through, um, it's kind of codifying things. So the hope is that the act will bring things up to date into the modern era. Um, so the, the basic question is, I'm not sure actually how many of you are incorporated societies or represent them. I know there's a few people who are advisors, some of you are from incorporated societies, but the, the fascinating thing is that every incorporated society will be impacted. So change is coming. 
Um, I, I should say we're going to send some follow-up notes after this session as well. Um, so I'm speaking to you from some slides and things which we will share um, afterwards. So all, and, and there's more than 23,000 incorporate societies registered, um, and they are all going to need to re-register by the transition date. And that's going to be the later of the 1st of December, 2025. So I think it's probably going to be that date or 2.5 years, two and a half years after some other um, provisions come into force, which will probably be later this year. Um, so once it's fully in effect, um, the applications for incorporation as a society won't be made under the old act, the 1908 act. Um, they'll be made under the new act. Um, it, it actually raises an interesting point, like what about societies setting up right now? Uh, is it the old act? Is it the new act? It's actually the old act, at least for now. Um, so we just recently helped one maybe two weeks ago. Um, which was registered as an incorporated society. And what we did to try to, as much as possible, future-proof it <laughs> was to actually build in all the bits from the new act, but it, we registered it under the old act and it went through without any trouble, but we were referring to the new act so that hopefully there won't be much updating that's needed. Um, so some of you may be wondering, uh, you know, if you're looking to set up, how do you actually do that? Um, then the interesting thing is that if a society fails to re-register by one of the dates that I mentioned, it will cease to exist. Um, there will be powers to restore them in certain situations, because I'm pretty sure that a lot of incorporated societies operate on volunteer um, power, and, and it may just completely go over the heads of a lot of people that they even need to do anything. So. The fact that you're on this call is showing a lot of proactivity on, on, your, on your behalf. Um, so yeah, there, there will be transitional um, you know, timeframes for that sort of thing to happen. And um, Sophie is putting into the chat some links to some details on the timing of the new act where we're trying to outline what does it actually mean practically. Um, so what we thought we'd do, and we're really keen actually to hear your questions, like we can go theoretically talking about this or that, but we'd love to ground um, this session in what your questions are. So do write in the chat if you've got questions as we're going through our top 10 things that we think you should know. Um, and then I think towards the end, we will ask if anybody wants to, if you don't want to type it in, that's fine. We'll get you to come off of the video, um, you know, muting, and then you can actually ask the question. Um, the one thing that I have to um, say is that we may not know the answer. <laughs> so lawyers never like to admit that, but it's the truth. And so if you ask a question and we don't know the answer, it doesn't mean there isn't an answer. It just means that we'll have to do a little bit of research. Um, but we actually want to be asked the hard questions because we want to find the answers. And so if you do ask a question and we don't know, we, we promise that we will go, we will find out, and then we will contact you and let you know what the guidance would be or the answer would be. Um, so I can answer the first question actually in the chat, does this also affect charitable trusts? The answer is no, because charitable trusts are charitable trusts. So it's 
people get confused sometimes as to which regime they fall under. Um, charitable trusts are registered with Charity Services under the Charities Act 2005, whereas in corporate societies, they're dealt with in a different bit of legislation, which is the Incorporated Societies Act, then they register as, as charities the same way charitable trusts do with charity services. So it's like a two-stage process. It's like, what type of entity are you? Incorporate society, incorporate societies act. Company, companies act. Charitable trust, char uh, trust act. And then once you've got your um, type of entity sorted, then you go to apply to become a charity. Um, so hopefully that's that's clear. Um, so we're going to run through the top 10. Um, I am going to do the first one, and then Sophie will talk through the second one. And uh, the first one is that new rules are required. So this is actually really, probably if you take nothing else away, um, you're going to have to re-register and you're going to need some new rules. Now, I view this as an opportunity rather than an administrative workload Oh no, because the reality is that many incorporate societies, when they were set up, it was 1972, it was 1984, maybe even earlier. And I can guarantee you that the rules that they uh, were set up with are likely to be outdated. And when I say that, I'm also meaning, are the rules even reflective of current practice that, um, that the societies even doing now. So I think this is an important point because if you view it as an opportunity, um, then it doesn't become a big administrative task. It actually becomes an opportunity to update and reflect actual reality. Like this is how we actually act. I know what the rule says and I know what it says about the provisions for calling a meeting, but we have never done that. <laughs> we act on a completely different basis. So the point is, it's a chance to actually reflect reality for your incorporated society. But number two, it's a chance to update and hopefully bring in better provisions which reflect the new act and which actually um, are best practice from a governance perspective. Because that's one of the main aims of this act is to really improve governance in incorporated societies. Um, after we go through the top 10, I'm going to be giving you my take on whether incorporate societies are actually the best vehicle, legal vehicle to be using. Um, I was really lucky. There's uh, someone named Craig Fisher who's actually on this call and we've been brainstorming. He's an expert in this area as well. And so we wrote an article about this topic. Is incorporate society actually the best for your entity? Um, so we're gonna go into that briefly after we get through the top 10. But the first one is simple, new rules will be required. Um, so um, Sophie's putting in the chat some links to things about this, um, but it, it basically has to do with membership, governance, general meetings, amendment procedures, dispute resolution procedures, purposes, winding up. Some societies will have all of this, but I have a feeling if you open the bottom drawer where no one has looked for a decade or more, if you look at the rules, it's probably missing a lot from what is required. Uh, I can guarantee it, actually. So that is the first um, top 10 of the top 10 changes, is that you're going to need new rules. So we've actually published six articles on this topic, 
um, each one of them is coming at it from a different angle about what you're going to need. Um, so number one, new rules are required. So I'm going to hand over to Sophie. She's going to lead you through number two. Awesome. Um, so the second change to consider is uh, that a committee is now required under the new Act. So the 1908 Act, it didn't actually require a society to have a committee. They only needed officers. Whereas under the new Act, uh, a society needs to have a committee, which includes three or more qualified officers. Um, now, the new Act also sets out who an officer is and what makes them qualified to be an officer. Um, we've detailed this all in a article as well that I'll uh, pop onto the chat because it's a lot to remember. Uh, but the officer, in order to be a qualified officer, they need to have they need to be a natural person, so it can't be a company. Um, they need to have consented to being an officer as well. Um, so that's so nobody can be, I guess, forced into the position of being an officer. They actually have to agree to doing it, um, and they have to be certified they have to have certified that they are not disqualified under the new act uh, to be an officer. So there's a long list of these disqualifications, but they are very similar to uh, disqualifications and legislation that regulates other entities. So it's nothing out of the ordinary there. Um, and I will pop an article that we've done on that, but the key takeaway from that is that a, every society will need a committee and that committee will need to be made up of three or more qualified officers. That's great. Okay, Perfect. Thank you. So that was number two. Um, and I, I got a direct message chat in there that wouldn't have been to everybody asking about when you are adopting new rules, can you refer to the new act or do you have to refer to the old one? When we did it, we just took a practical perspective, which is in a few months, it's all going to be under the new act. So we just went ahead and referred to the new act. And that went through without any issue with, um, you know, the application. So that's the answer to the person who put that in. Um, number three is officers' duties. So this is an interesting topic, governance, officers' duties. Um, the new act, it actually is mainly codifying the existing common law. So that's kind of lawyer speak for these were duties that already existed, but they weren't written down in a you know, logical sort of number one, number two, number three way. So these can be found in, in the new act. If you go to sections 54 to 61, that's where the new provisions are. And it really is talking about the duties that are owed to the incorporated society. So I'm not planning to go into detail on what each of these are, but for those of you who are familiar with corporate law, company law, a lot of these are kind of echoes of what is standard within a company context. So they, they include things like duty to act in good faith and in the society's best interest, duty to exercise powers for a proper purpose, duty to comply with the new act and the society's constitution, uh, a duty of care, duty not to create substantial risk of serious loss to creditors, and duty not to agree to the society incurring obligations that it cannot perform. Um, just as a little side footnote, maybe of interest, is the last two there about the duties creating substantial risk of serious loss. Um, those came under quite relatively heavy criticism in the final reading of the bill, um, with some MPs um, arguing that that was um, it, basically appropriate for more commercial contexts 
and it wasn't really important uh, as as it shouldn't be a requirement here because in commercial context directors are quite well compensated um, and I'm, I'm sure if you're on the call you can probably agree incorporated societies generally are operating on a volunteer basis um, so the point that the MPs were making um, who disagreed with including this is that it was probably more appropriate for commercial rather than this more of a voluntary you know incorporate societies context however they've been adopted and um, when they when people were responding to those criticisms I think they did say we will review this we'll see how it goes you know um, so anyway the point is there are new now officers duties which are clearly set out and I actually think this is another opportunity like rather than a negative thing many people sign up to support charities and to support in in different ways but don't often consider the fact that they are actually taking on real roles you know um, they're acting from motives of the heart but actually they are potentially taking on liability by um, becoming an officer so it's i think it's helpful to at least set out what are the duties so that people are clear they understand they you know need to act in good faith they need to exercise powers for a proper purpose it should help hopefully be a reminder for people about what the duties are and then when new people are coming in it it will be a tool to say well you know here's what you have to do here's the standard because my my own hope is that over time the standard of governance within voluntary groups charities will continue to increase and we will get even better outcomes so that's number three. I'm going to hand over for number four. Thanks, Stephen. Um, so the fourth change we want to talk about is the changes to membership. Um, so under the old Act, a society needed 15 members in order to register. And now that's actually been dropped to 10, which is great for smaller societies. But um, what's also important to be aware of is that it's a minimum, continuous minimum requirement. So society will always need to have at least 10 members under the new Act, uh, which will be very important for smaller societies to keep an eye on. A, under both Acts, a body corporate is still treated as being three members for the purpose of uh, counting the number of members in the society. Uh, so that's a positive as well. Uh, but yeah, it's very important for smaller societies to keep an eye on the 10 membership minimum. Um, and the registrar may give notice and if a society drops below that uh, 10 members uh, to increase their membership. And then there's provisions for how this uh, the registrar will then deal with that society if they stay below the 10 membership minimum. Mm. Um, the new Act also introduces a requirement for members to consent to being a member and for the society to keep a register of members with details such as the name of the member, their last known contact details and the date they became a member as well. Yeah, so there's a few new requirements for membership under the new Act, uh, but hopefully that will be helpful, I guess, being able to keep track of who the members are um, and that they have agreed to being a member and then also that uh, 10 membership minimum. Yeah, that's perfect. So it might be that in your incorporated societies, you're kind of keeping an eye on it. And if it drifts below, if you're at seven, eight, nine, time to do a membership drive or ask a friend to join. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it, it? That there is even this requirement, right? Why do we do that? But I guess the point is that incorporated societies are generally 
very member focused, you know, that that's the ethos behind them, as opposed to say a charitable trust, which is more governed by, you know, the trustees, it's not dependent on members. So it, it makes sense, but um, it would just be something that you need to be aware of and keep track of in terms of who are our members. Um, it, if you're, it, I, maybe a question in the chat will be, how do you consent? Um, I think the easiest would be if you get people to actually sign something, you know, they've actually consented, it's in writing. Um, but the counter to that is that we live in a virtual world, right? So look at all of you here, we've got like 42 of you on Zoom talking. So my own view is that if you had an email or if you had, um, you know, some evidence that the person did consent to becoming a member that 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 would be something you could save you could store it you know that if it ever became a question there would be a consent um and yeah it it, it doesn't actually go into a lot of detail about how you would prove that consent um it's kind of a theoretical point but you know interesting to think about what does it mean in a virtual world and how do we how do we consent to things so I get to take you through number five, and this one is really interesting. This is the conflict of interest procedures. So conflicts of interest, um, for better or worse, <laughs> conflicts often come up um, for people in, you know, voluntary type groups. Um, it might be that you're actually supplying goods and services to the society. It might be that there is a relationship of some kind, you know, where there's um, family members involved or something. So the, the reason for the conflict of interest procedures um, and, you know, how will we deal with conflicts? Uh, they've now been enshrined um, really clearly in section 62 to 73. Um, so it introduces a procedure that requires officers to disclose um, when they're interested in a matter. And then if an officer is interested in a matter, then they can't vote or take part in that decision or sign documents related to it. So it, it, it makes sense, right? Uh, but it, I guess it's articulating much more clearly how you deal with conflicts. So I view this again as a really positive thing. Um, if more than half of the committee were interested um, and therefore, you know, you couldn't actually have a vote, then the committee would have to call a special general meeting to determine that particular matter. So some, some of these procedures can actually be um, modified in the Constitution, and we've written an article about that as well that I think is going into the chat. So just a reminder for anybody who joined since we started, if you've got questions, you can put them in the chat or we'll be opening it up a bit later. Um, yeah, so that's conflicts. You're going to do number six. Absolutely. Um, so our sixth change that we want to discuss is the introduction of dispute resolution procedures. Uh, so the new act requires the society's constitution to include dispute resolution procedures, including a provision for how complaints uh, can be made. And as Stephen's been saying, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it's good for a society to have a procedure for how complaints are made and uh, disputes resolved. So if a society's constitution doesn't include disputes resolution procedures, it will be treated as including the procedures set out in the Act. So the uh, Incorporated Societies Act itself actually sets out some dispute resolution procedures and 
they're there if a um, society wants to use them. Uh, they're presumed to be in accordance with natural justice, uh, which is a requirement for the dispute resolution procedures of a society, whether or not they're the uh, ones in the act or ones that society has made up um, itself, they need to be in accordance with natural justice. Um, and yes, yeah, so there's the ones in the act there that a society can use or they can come up with their own rules as well. Um, so again, this is good for a society to have a way that disputes are resolved um, and there are the procedures there in the act as well. Yeah, so again, I guess one of the themes that hopefully is coming through is that as incorporated societies, this act is actually quite empowering. You know, like if you view it that way, you can either go with what's in the act or you can develop your own. And so you might have a specific way, you know, as a, as a group of how you're going to deal with things. And that's fine. That's allowed. Um, you just have to clearly set it out and make it clear what it is that applies. And if you don't do that, then the act applies. So we've been um, working quite a lot with incorporated societies who are obviously needing to transition um, and developing causes that we think will address each of these requirements so that um, you'll be able to continue on with a lot of what you had in your former rules because nobody wants to throw away everything. Um, but then going through and picking out the bits where you need to drop in this cause to amend the new act provisions, you know, or amend this over here or provide for officers. And, you know, so I guess the point is you can tweak things, you can customize them um, rather than feeling like, oh, it's, it's all a bit much. Um, and hopefully if you did have, you know, a discussion together, you'd say, well, actually we want to deal with dispute resolution in this way. Um, so you're allowed to do that. Number seven, um, and like I've said, uh, I'll be sending out the slides later. Um, so don't worry, you know, there will be more content that follows up this, but also we're hopeful that the, um, the links that we're putting in the chat, hopefully that's also answering um, questions in detail on specific points. So the financial reporting side, uh, part three, subpart seven uh, of the new act does introduce these accounting standards where the incorporated society will need to prepare financial statements according to the standards that suit the size of their society. So it's probably not teaching any of you anything you don't know, is that there's different um, standards required depending on the size, you know, how many funds are coming through. Um, so the act um, is explicit as to the standard for what are called small societies, and that's um, less than 50,000. That's actually in the act, isn't it? That, yes. that figure of less than 50,000. So a small society, and, and again, I think they have in mind, this is, this is really at the lower end in terms of it's all volunteers. You know, there's not a huge amount of funds flowing through accounts. Um, and a small society may prepare their financial statements according to generally accepted accounting practice um, or a non-GAAP standard that applies for the purposes of section 102 or the requirements set out in section 104. So it, it's kind of, it is a little bit detailed and I'll be honest, I'm not an accountant. So <laughs> um, it, it's important to make sure that whenever you're getting advice, that you're making sure you're getting input from the right sources. So 
our input is mainly on the legal side in terms of what are the changes that need to be reflected when it comes to well, which standard are we or how do we go about preparing um, you know, our reports. That's really something that some of my colleagues who I see on this call <laughs> who work as accountants or as auditors, they're really the ones who can give the detailed advice there. So just a plug, always make sure you're getting advice from um, the right sources. And if you get one advisor who says that they do, do everything, um, just make sure you ask a lot of questions because I, I, I never claim to know all there is to know about accounting sides. And I think most accountants I know would say, well, I actually don't know about all the legal sides. So you have to get input from both sides. Um, yep. So I think um, there's some, these standards, um, there's going to be requirements about the timing for, for filing. Um, you know, they have to complete financial statements for the balance date. Um, let's see, when is that? Um, yeah, within six months of the balance date. So that's the date specified in the constitution. Uh, and they need to date and sign those financial statements uh, on behalf of the society by two members of the committee. They have to give copies of those financial statements to the registrar for registration. So again, if you're interested in that topic, <laughs> there's a, some good resources out there and you can dive deeper into it. Number eight. Um, so the law commission, uh, the eighth change uh, that we want to talk about is amalgamation procedures, which are now available in the new act. Uh, so the law commission noted this in its report on the old act, that it didn't really have any restructuring options for societies. Uh, so in response to this, the new act sets out amalgamation procedures. So that basically means that societies can join together um, either into one of the societies or into a new society. And this would be great for uh, maybe smaller societies who are struggling with membership or then where there's different branches of a society and some of them want to come together. Um, it's really great that there's actually this procedure in here and it's a simplified, simplified version of the Companies Act procedure. Um, so hopefully that will be really helpful for societies um, and it, yeah, brings the act up to speed, I guess, by providing for that, which is good. Yeah, and again, we're kind of sounding super positive here, but is there an opportunity here? Because as going forward, let's face it, that's a lot of incorporated societies, like 24,000 incorporated societies. There probably is room for some consolidation amalgamation where people are actually doing very similar things, but there's replication. Um, so, it, this hopefully will allow that um, more easily in the future um, rather than going through other processes. And yeah, it, it should make it simpler. Um, number nine, and we're nearly there. So keep your questions coming in the chat. So we're going to turn to that next. Um, number nine is enforcement. And part four of the new act sets out civil law enforcement provisions that explicitly state that the the order a court may make and who may apply for a court order. So this could help, for example, a member of a society apply to the court where they believe the society's constitution has been breached. So it's really more for your radar that there are some changes around enforcement. Um, so that's quite a simple one. Um, yeah, the last one, number 10. Oh, this is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Very exciting. Offences under the new act. Um, so the 
not very exciting actually, but New Act sets out uh, criminal offences and there are infringement offences which are less serious and include matters such as failing to notify the registrar of amendments to the constitution and a society that commits an offence like that may be liable for a fine, um, no more than $3,000. But then there are also serious offences under the Act, uh, such as making false statements, uh, fraud, um, falsification of the register records or documents, and improperly using uh, the word incorporated. And these are sort of a uh, supplement to the dishonesty provisions in the Crimes Act. So those are, yeah very bad offences uh, where there's fraud being taking place and some of these offences could result in a fine of up to $200,000 or a term of imprisonment of up to five years. So it's just worth keeping on your radar that things like fraud, they're not good and the Act recognises that and provides offences for that and there's also the uh, minor offences there as well. Yeah, so we'd like to end on a lighter note there, <laughs> but it is important to know. Um, and again, I think I said before, sometimes people sign up for things and they don't actually understand that there's some serious implications of doing this. I think that in general, the, the types of things that we're talking about here, I'm hopeful that none of you will ever face it because it literally is at that end of the scale. You know, this is we falsified the records, you know, like we, we um, destroyed property, we, we dishonestly incurred debt, like, uh, it, it shouldn't come up. But if it did, then there are provisions there in the offenses. So the, the interesting thing is, you know, this is the that little 1895 version, which I said, that's it. And this is the Incorporated Societies Act 2022. And there's a lot of causes. <laughs> so um, there's there's a lot of change. Um, and I think the Incorporated Societies Act is is a, a little bit bigger, but even it only had, was it 41 sections? Um, so it's, yeah, to go from 41 sections to now 270 sections, um, there's obviously a lot there. <laughs> um, so Hopefully that's been helpful in terms of some of the top 10 things that we think um, should be on your radar. Um, and I'm aware many of you are coming, you know, dialing in as officers or involved in incorporate societies. The intent of this isn't to overwhelm you with, oh, wow, this is a lot of change. It's to empower you so that you can go back and talk with your committees, with your other officers, with your people involved and say, well, actually let's treat this as an opportunity to really refresh our organization. Let's treat it as an opportunity to enshrine how we want to act, how we want to be going forward. So that would be my encouragement, you know, the glass half full. Um, I know it can seem imposing, but there is an opportunity here as well. Um, so I, I just briefly wanted to touch before we get to the questions on, on this kind of flowing on from what I just said, and that is, is our structure actually the right one to have going forward? Because in my view, this is actually a really interesting moment in time. This will not happen very often. It, it, we're not gonna get another new act for a very long time, right? So this is actually a moment to say, is our incorporated society structure the best to continue with our mission and our purpose? And the reason why I raised this, um, and we're gonna be putting, we may have put in the link to this um, note or 
article that I wrote with Craig Fisher um, on, for the Auckland District Law Society. So our question there, uh, the title is, is the Incorporated Society's model right for your organization? So feel free to read it. I, we were purposefully, um, and Craig's on the call, I think, so he can vouch for this. We're purposefully asking hard questions. I think both of us are intent in asking these hard questions is to hopefully help organizations to improve. We're not meaning it in a negative way or in a you're on the wrong pathway. It's more, what could we do so that we have the maximum impact and the maximum purpose being fulfilled? And so the reality is, it, for me, incorporated societies have many positives, but I also think they have negatives. So I have had situations where the president of the incorporated society calls me on a Friday and says, oh, hey, just letting you know our AGMs tomorrow. I'll let you know on Monday how it goes. On Monday, I get a phone call. It's a different voice at the end of the line. And what's happened is that the previous committee has been rolled and they are gone. And the new people have come in and the entire organization is completely upended, <laughs> headed in a different direction or whatever. So I just see that incorporate societies, they just, because they are so democratic, which is great, there's members, they have votes, they have the potential to be taken over. And I've heard examples of incorporate societies where special interest groups have managed to rally large numbers to show up at an AGM to elect themselves as officers and their first action be to wind up. And so I guess the point here is that hopefully all the new provisions will help around governance going forward, but is the incorporated society's model, which is a member-based organization model, is it right for your organization? Or is there another model which might be worth looking at? Because this is the moment to ask these hard questions. Um, I liken it to if I go to buy a car, if I, I've, I'm going to buy a vehicle and I want to go skiing, then I should probably buy the four-wheel drive, which is going to get me up to Mount Hutt, no problems. I should probably not buy that beautiful convertible, you know, which will not do well on a rough road. But if I want to drive around town, you know, and, and wave at people, maybe the convertible would be better rather than the four-wheel drive. And it's the same way. We're talking about a vehicle, a legal vehicle. And it's always good to ask, is our legal vehicle the right one for the job? Is it appropriate and best for what we're doing? So I, I'm throwing this out as a challenge. Have a read of the article. Reach out to Craig or I. We're always happy to talk about this stuff. Um, that what I would be saying is, is there another option Number one, should we be a charitable trust? Charitable trusts, from my perspective, they're very simple. There's easy governance. You make decisions, you get on with the work. You don't have to worry about annual general meetings and the politics of elections. And so that's a viable option to consider. Um, the other option could be a charitable company. And people sometimes get surprised that you can have a company which is a charity, but it's definitely possible. I think in the last year, um, our team has helped set up probably about 40 or 50 different charities. 
and many of them have been charitable companies. So the key is that charitable companies have to have constitutions which enshrine the fact that there will be no private gain to individuals. What happens on winding up? All the assets go to charity and um, there's payments have to be very strictly monitored and controlled so that there's no um, large amounts going to individuals. Um, so, but if you can do those things, and it's relatively straightforward, you can have a constitution for a company, you can register as a charitable company. So it might be that this is an opportune time to say, the incorporate societies model, we've had it for 25 years, but maybe our model would actually fit better as a company. And so, yeah, throwing that out as a question, I think now is the best time to be asking that question. <laughs> um, so we're gonna turn to um, these questions in the chat. Maybe you can help me with um, monitoring those. But just before we do, when we send out the material, we hope that this session has been helpful. Our heart, our intent behind it is to help empower incorporated societies with knowledge that they need and also other groups. So um, we have set up what we're calling an information hub, which will be adding information to in the coming weeks and months and years probably, <laughs> where we're gonna be summarizing any key issues, any questions, what the answers are. So be, I guess, checking back there. We're aware that many of you from incorporate societies, you'll know other incorporate societies, so feel free to pass it on. Our hope is that that will become an information hub that across the country people are going, oh, what about governance? Well, let's have a look. Oh, what about this? Um, that's the intent behind it. Um, and then the other um, thing that I will forget to do if I don't do it right now is that we've done um, this book, The Charities in New Zealand, a legal handbook. So that's covering how to set them up, what you know, governance is, how to operate. Um, we've actually done a specific one just for churches, which have unique aspects to what they need to think about. Um, we've done another thing, which is called Social Enterprises in New Zealand, a legal handbook, which is looking at how can we get profit and purpose combining to actually take the mission forward. And then we've done um, this startups legal toolkit, um, which is looking at just startups more generally. Um, and then the last thing to share is this little book of um, essays about the future of business, which came out a few months ago. And this is just a free download. We'll put it in um, you know, the email that comes out afterwards, but it's a bunch of essays about what could business be in the future. So hopefully it just gives the impression we're trying to resource and empower the sector <laughs> in a variety of different ways. So um, we're gonna turn now and run through questions. Um, we've got a couple minutes left. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that session about the Incorporate Societies Act. For those of you who made it this far, I'm assuming that this is relevant to you. So if it is, make sure to reach out because we're always putting out new material that we think will help people. And we're also willing to talk to you if you have questions. Check out the show note for the link to where you can get more information. Until next time.